Hi guys, welcome back to episode 5 of Elsner Nia's Emergency Room Podcast. This week we're reading chapters 7 and 8 of Complications, A Surgeon's Note on an Imperfect Science by Dr. Atua Gawande. My name is Elsa and here I have my co-host Ria. Hi guys, so yeah, our first chapter that we're going to be discussing is the pain perplex. And so this chapter starts off with Dr. Gawande describing... Um, the situation of this 56-year-old man named Roland Scott Quinlan. And uh, he was an architect, he was a sailor, um, and uh, he started experiencing some sort of pain not too long after an injury of his, but it was also uh, completely different from what his injury was towards. So basically, he fell off a plank at a construction site, and his back was fine, but he had some issues with his shoulder, He had it fixed with some operations, but then uh, that fall, I guess, he all of a sudden had a spasm of pain in his back, and it was so unbearable that, I mean, eventually it just started taking over his whole life. Um, And just to give you some context, he had, like, vomited sometimes because the pain was so severe. Uh, Sometimes he would soil his pants. So you can tell that it was very extreme the sort of pain he was having and of course naturally he took it to a bunch of doctors trying to figure out what was the cause of this pain and yet no doctor he saw could figure it out you know all the x-rays proved to not have not show anything there's a bit of arthritis but nothing out of the ordinary that's a quote um you know they kept giving him steroids and local anesthetics into his spine but nothing was working he kind of just had to deal with this pain And like I said, it took over his whole life. He couldn't go back to work um, and was just constantly on certain drugs like narcotic fentanyl that was on a skin patch 24 hours a day. Couldn't even sleep. Couldn't walk up the stairs. So essentially, um, it was more frustrating the fact that they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So on his end, he was constantly looking for some sort of problem that had a solution but on the doctor's end he started thinking that this pain might have all just been mental something that the doctor i mean the patient was making up and apparently they see these kinds of patients pretty often i guess when you talk about chronic pain um so then it kind of went into the duality of the system how these patients definitely don't at least consciously think that they're making up any sort of pain while the doctors are pretty frustrated because they they being people of science are just looking for some sort of logical explanation. And when they don't find it, they resort to thinking that it must be made up. Um, First, I kind of want to just talk about that point right there. And being someone who is been a patient or who has been a patient multiple times um, and someone who is a pre-health major who is looking to join the healthcare field, um, it's interesting to see the duality of this and see it from everyone's perspectives. Because naturally, I kind of just side with the the patients and say, you know, how could doctors just not even acknowledge that this pain must be very real to the person, especially if he's throwing up and, you know, couldn't function. So it's a little annoying to think that the doctors are uh, not really, or not really taking it seriously. And I tried to understand Dr. Gwande's point, and he did make it easy to understand when he said that it was just the fact that doctors are so used to there being some sort of explanation and because there wasn't 
that's why they find it frustrating. So I guess that kind of made sense and kind of helped me see it from their perspective. What do you think? I think I also agree with you. I side with the patient most of the time because I've been on the receiving end where I uh, told my doctor that I was in joint pain or like I had joint pain, I mean, for like uh, since fifth grade and the doctor never took me seriously until like this year. So it's been a long time. And it's just frustrating as a patient when you try to tell the doctor something's wrong, but they think that you're either exaggerating because you're a kid or, you know, there's not really that big of a problem. Um, I feel like maybe the doctor has the right to be suspicious since people often fake things to get medication or for other reasons, just for attention. I don't know. But um Overall, I think I sided with the patient in most of the cases. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You bring up a good point thinking about like um, the abuse of certain medications, especially pain medications. Um, so they definitely do have to be cautious. And also it's the fact that they went to school for all these years, so they must know what they're doing. It's not like they're just being lazy. At least I would hope so. So it's a tricky situation. Yeah. And you don't want to be the doctor that, like, accidentally over-prescribes medication, especially pain medication leading to an addiction of any sort. So I think they just have to pick and choose their body. So this isn't related to pain medication, but I, um, I was with a PA, a physician assistant, and we were, um, I was shadowing him. And so he had a patient whose son um had some sort of respiratory problem and he wasn't in any sort of pain or anything but he was just a little uncomfortable and so the physician assistant said that he wanted to just wait a few days let the whatever um illness was with whatever the kid was going through he wanted to just wait till the kid wrote it out because it would go away in two to three days but the mother was like no i need my kid to have medication right now they need to have some sort of antibiotics. And the, the physician assistant was saying, like, that would actually make it worse because um, I don't know the exact medical, uh, exact medicine behind it, but basically he was like, no, that wouldn't really help at all. It just kind of make it worse, maybe. And so the best thing to do is wait. But in the end, the patient won and the PA ended up prescribing medication. And in the car, he was like, yeah, you just got to pick and choose your battles. Like, that's it's not one that I could win over there. She just really wanted it. And you can see that's why she called me. Um, it's not even to check up on her kid. It was just for the medication. So, I mean, as a parent, rightfully, you're worried. And you might not understand what antibiotics really does. But, you know, it makes your kid better when he's sick. So you want it for the kid, but as a doctor or as a PA or someone in the healthcare field, you know that there's serious complications or whatever that can come out of it. So yeah, just um, frustrating from both perspectives. Yeah, it definitely always is a tricky situation to navigate. And it's like almost like I wish um, like people would trust the healthcare physician or PA or um, provider more. Um, because they do have the knowledge and this is their job. It's like the old saying, like, don't tell me how to do my job, like, right? Like, if you don't know how to do it. 
which is why I can understand why it's frustrating on their part, especially because they definitely know what they're doing. Um, or at least, you know, they, they're doing what's in the patient's best interest always. Uh, but also, it's like you said, like the mom might not have much knowledge. They just know that it makes the child feel better. So they want it. But, you know, it's like kind of like long term. Is this really what's best? So Rene Descartes said that pain is a physical phenomenon, meaning that once you're injured, your brain just says, okay, you have pain. The analogy he used is it's like pulling on a rope to ring a bell in the brain, which is a quote from the book. Um, Basically, once you do something that could cause pain, your brain, it's like ringing a bell inside your brain and signaling to your brain that you are in pain now, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. But they perfected this in 1965, saying that, uh, oh, they perfected this in 1965, or made the theory better, and called it the gate control theory of pain, uh, where Ronald Melzack, who's a Canadian psychologist, and Patrick Wall, who's a British physiologist, they worked together and they said that before the pain signals get to the brain, they go through a gating mechanism in the spinal cord. And so you might not feel the pain the same way every time, like it might be in different amounts. And um, I think this theory makes more sense because there are times when you get hurt, but you don't necessarily feel the pain right away. or You don't feel it at all. Um, or it might be less than another time where you got hurt the same way and felt pain. So Melzig and Wall initially said that maybe it's signals from sensory nerves that controlled the brain's response to pain. But then they later suggested that maybe it's also got something to do with the emotions we feel. Um Another study showed that extroverts have higher pain tolerance than introverts. And um, this one was pretty interesting to me because I don't, you know, I don't really understand how that makes sense. How is someone who's more extroverted going to have a higher pain tolerance than introverts? Oh, so this relates nicely to placebo procedures that um, people, psychologists, uh, physiologists, and doctors often use. So, um, in one study, 500, I just read that thing. So, 500 patients uh, who were undergoing dental procedures, they were given a placebo injection and they were told that this would take away some of the pain and discomfort. And so, the control group would receive the actual medication since what's being tested is if uh, the idea of having the injection would take away some of the pain from the patient. And uh, I think the whole idea was the fact that people given the placebo injection, uh, like actually did like, and they thought they weren't receiving the placebo, they felt less pain even though it doesn't make sense because they weren't given any pain medication. So it was to show that um, it's kind of like all mental at this point where it's like, if you think that you're not going to experience pain, you might not. And at the time in 1965, this gate control theory was just a theory. 
but now, or I mean, it was just, you know, in the process of being worked out, but now it's in every medical textbook. So it's a fact. But even with that, um, it didn't explain people like Quinlan, who we had talked about before, who had the back pain. Um, because it wasn't like the back pain. I mean, the back pain was chronic, but there was no injury that they could see. And since it's been going on for so long, it's not like he was making it up. Yeah, so what he's saying is that basically we think of pain as being some sort of response to injury, even with the gate control theory. But uh, there are situations like with Roland where um, there is no injury and yet he's feeling pain. So it's kind of like, does the gate theory really apply here? So then Dr. Gawande talks about um, another situation where there was a patient who he calls Mark Taylor. Uh, He was undergoing brain surgery because I think they were trying to fix a hand tremor. Um, And what they, the doctor, Dr. Frederick Lenz noted during surgery uh, was that if he zapped this certain area of Taylor's brain, it ended up causing this severe chest pain. So now a little bit of backstory with uh, this patient, Mark Taylor, he would sometimes randomly have this kind of chest pain uh, from a severe panic disorder, uh, I think at least once a week. So, you know, he was no stranger to this, but he also did not know what would bring it on. Um, And then all of a sudden he's in brain surgery and Dr. Lenz, when he zaps this certain area with the, I think he was cauterizing it. um, When he would do so, he noticed that he could basically control this patient's um, chest pains. And so, you know, he, he knew that this area with in, in general, like normally patients tend to feel some, some slight discomfort in their chest when he cauterizes this area, but for this patient Taylor, the pain was super severe. So basically what he gained from this, the knowledge he gained was the fact that some patients might be overly sensitive to certain stimuli, which results in a higher level of pain. So how this relates back to Roland is the fact that there doesn't need to be some sort of injury to cause pain But even for some people, the slightest sort of stimulus could cause that same kind of pain that in general, normally would only come about with some sort of injury. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. And I also think it's really interesting that um, he had panic attacks, which led to chest pain. But then stimulating that specific area led to the same effect, like panic attacks, I would think that's more psychological, correct me if I'm wrong, but so that's clearly something in the brain and then stimulating neurons, I guess that's also somewhat neurological, right? Yeah, I think, well, because it's probably connected, so maybe the area he was zapping uh, was known to be um, like a control center for emotions like panic, so maybe that's why. And so do you think that means that there's a way to control like panic attacks or in people who have panic attacks or maybe even anxiety in people who have severe anxiety? Yeah, well, I mean, I would assume that the medications that are prescribed for anxiety 
like, uh, well, severe panic attacks like Xanax, um, I would assume it probably affects the neurons that are maybe in that area and maybe has a similar effect to what would be like, I mean, the, the cauterization actually brought on the panic attack. So maybe like the negative version of that is what the Xanax and other medications do. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about the medications. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Gwanda doesn't really specify um, what region it was. He just says, like, you know, what the site was labeled. Uh, I think he called it Site 23. Yeah. But he doesn't explain what the site is responsible for. So now this kind of brought on a new theory about pain, which um, Dr. Gawande, and I don't know if it's just known like this, but Dr. Gawande at least calls it neuromodules. So he says it's similar to like computer programs where um, it's like you feel pain and then your brain runs a quote neuromodule that produces the pain experience as if someone pressed a play button on a CD player, end quote. I guess the main idea here is that pain is a pretty complex process where it isn't just because of some sort of injury like we tend to think of, but it could be caused by a lot of other things like a slight sort of stimulus and also maybe multiple stimuli together work to create a specific feeling of pain. Um, And in his words, he calls it as pain being a symphony. So kind of similar to what we were just saying, um, once they realized that pain was pretty kind of psychological like this, or at least more psychological and mental than uh, initially believed, they realized that maybe they should try testing out some of these psychological drugs or psychiatric drugs to um, combat pain rather than, you know, the morphine. Um, So they tried anti-epileptic drugs. For example, uh, they saw that, okay, if there's like an oversensitive neuronal system, maybe, and and if that's what's contributing to someone's pain, if they were to um, somehow decrease the effect or the hypersensitivity of the neuronal system, Uh, with drugs, then maybe they can decrease someone's pain. So that's why they tried anti-epileptic drugs like carbamazepine and gabapentin. Um, And so, you know, these drugs are known to kind of, quote, tune brain cells to modulate their excitability, end quote. Um, And they work for some people, but it's not a miracle drug. But the main idea here is the fact that they figured out that this might be a... uh, angle to take where the drugs could have the same effect as morphine but not have the same idea of dependence hopefully they can find a drug that uh is neurostabilizing or has neurostabilizing compounds that are similar that work for extended periods of time um because i feel like that'd be a i mean maybe they do by now because this book was written in 2005 right so it's been 15 years and maybe they have found something that helps people who are experiencing this type of pain. No, yeah. And I think I would assume that they, you know, even if they haven't found a miracle cure, I would assume that with the technological innovations that have occurred in the medical field in the past 15 years, they definitely have gotten close. And um, this is kind of similar to when he talked about 
palliative care and how at the time of writing this book, it was a new field that was coming up in medicine. And they kind of just talked about the idea of how, you know, when we check vital signs, they proposed a fifth vital sign where um, someone were was to like be analyzed based on how much pain they were experiencing because they believe that, you know, it's a pretty important part of someone's care. So, um, you know, they tried focusing in on that and how they could decrease someone's amount of pain. So I think that's just one example of how they definitely have been taking pain and pain medicine more seriously in the past 15 years, especially as uh, the number of people with chronic back pain, for example, has been increasing. And that's just something uh, early on, Dr. Gwande said, um, accounts for 40% of workers' compensation payments, payments, at least at the time that this was written. And that's crazy. And I, uh, when I started working at uh, ShopRite last summer, I remember they had this whole course on uh, avoiding injury during work. Uh, and I would assume it's because there's just so many people who get injured during work. And um, it's good that they're taking precautions. Yeah, that actually is a good point. I've noticed that um, just listening to my parents talk, everyone seems to be more conscious at, in like the their respective work fields about preventing any sort of injury, which is interesting. I actually never thought about it like that. Yeah, I feel like I learned how to lift something heavy the proper way at every single new thing I went to. Um, when I started volunteering, um, they taught me how to properly lift. And then when I started going to EMT school, they, they like spend an entire day showing me how to properly lift. Um, and I think it's funny because uh, at ShopRite, actually, I like lifted something and my back kind of hurt and it still kind of does. So there's that. Oh, <laughs> well, that's not good. Yeah. But also that uh, it's interesting to me that half of it can be in the brain then because I feel like my pain is very real, so how can it just be something that my brain is making up? I feel like if there's anything I've learned in the past four years of my personal like health things that I've noticed going on, I, I've come to realize that the mind-body connection is stronger than we would ever be able to conceive, and it's kind of just, it, it runs its own course without us even like consciously being aware of it. That would make sense. Like, um, I know gut health and mental health are very closely related. If you eat well, you automatically feel better. Um, oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Um, side note. On TikTok, I learned from this doctor, so I don't know how credible it is, but apparently um, when you, like, stop eating properly, that's you get more, like, depressed. And naturally, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. As in, like... Eat properly, meaning like uh, up to like when you're full, or up to like you're like eating the right nutrients and not junk food. I think both, because um, what I would do is I would go on like healthy eating whatever for like whatever amount of months, and I'd break it and I'd just stop eating and also only eat junk food when I was eating. So, but also I did that because I wasn't feeling good. So it's like both a cycle. Yeah, it's interesting to I mean pinpoint the actual root of 
like the psychological feelings and then also your health. So the final thing Dr. Gwandi talks about um, occurred in Australia where uh, in, 19, in the 1980s, um, there were a group of keyboard operators who suddenly had uh, something known as repetition strain injury, which was severe writer's cramp, basically. Um, and because there were keyboard operators that happened in their arm. And this was so severe that uh, people were out from work for like 74 days. So it hadn't really existed before 1981, but by 1985, there were a huge number of people who had injuries. Um, and it disabled about 30% of the workforce. So researchers believe that there are two factors that uh, sparked the epidemic or like the huge rise in uh, repetitive strain injury patients. Uh, one was initially uh, there was action to make sure that the people who were getting called out from work or who were calling out from work for like 74 days, they were getting compensated because of a work-related injury. But when this didn't really go to plan and it seemed that they wouldn't get disability coverage, uh, people who reported the pain, uh, just the numbers started to go down, which I think that makes sense because um, people maybe are overriding the pain or maybe... This is saying that the pain wasn't there to begin with. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it was probably they just didn't even know that they were making it up or like that it wasn't real. I think they probably thought it was very real, but it was because like their mind was convincing them that it was real when it wasn't. Because maybe somehow their brain processed the information that, oh, I might get a benefit um if i have this pain and so then their mind said okay have this pain and so they had the pain but then once that uh once the benefits went away then their mind processed it again and was like okay well we don't need you to have this pain and then it went away i don't think it was any like malintent on the person themselves like consciously making up this pain but i think it just so happened that the mind did it without the without the person knowing, if that makes sense. I know it's very interesting to talk about it in the sense that the mind is separate from, like, the conscience, if that makes sense, or, like, the unconscious and the conscience, um, which I think was the most interesting part of this. Yeah, I think that relates to the next uh, factor that he talked about, which is the fact that initially when people were uh, getting the injury, there were it was, like, being publicized, so more people were seeing things about the reportings of arm pain. And so because of that, more people thought maybe this relates to me. You know, similar to how when you feel a symptom of something, you go on Google, search it up, and you see a disease. And me personally, I'm automatically like, I have that disease. So, you know, right to the conclusion. Um, It could have been that through advertisements or whatever, reports that these people were seeing yeah yeah it's just crazy to think how like your unconscious mind can just take some information and run with it without your conscious mind knowing that it's occurring but yeah um even if a lot of uh, societal conditions may influence chronic pain syndromes it doesn't mean that these people are making it up you know uh, if someone says that they're in pain they you know it's good to I have to stop saying, you know, if someone says they're in pain, 
they most likely are in pain because why would someone make that up? Uh, I know there's some people that do, but it's not like every single person that reports a pain is doing it for non-serious reasons. Um, and so, yeah, as future healthcare professionals, I think it's in our best interest to take each of our patients seriously and not grow and not be like, who's that surgeon from last time? Hook. No, Goodman. And not be like the surgeon, Dr. Goodman, and just, you know, overlook the problems that patients complain about because either we don't want to treat it or it seems like a minimal issue. Yeah, definitely. And this is kind of like a side topic that Dr. Gwande didn't talk about here. But you see all the time, uh, kind of like a general theme that often comes up in our readings is the fact that patients aren't um, being taken seriously. And I think now more than ever, like as we continue to progress, there's more of an emphasis being put on patient care and how we should definitely try and listen to the patients because ultimately it's their body. They do have some sort of knowledge on what's going on um even if it's real or not whatever it's still something they're feeling so the the just the idea or the simple um act of being empathetic and just trying to work with them on what they're experiencing i think goes a long way and it was mentioned briefly here but it's just like just being there for the patient emotionally in terms of like understanding that yes I see this is what you're going through while we don't have an answer for you I believe you I think just saying something like that goes a long way I agree with you um and I think Dr. Gwande goes nicely into that in the next chapter where uh there is an expecting mother um her name is Amy Fitzpatrick and she's 29 years old and so she's eight weeks pregnant with twins when around the time when her nausea starts and nausea is pretty common early in pregnancy um in uh this is off topic a little bit but I used to watch a lot of Indian movies growing up and in those Indian movies the setting was always like the early 2000s or uh late 1990s and so during that time they didn't really take pregnancy tests especially because a lot of the settings are in the village and so the way they would know is because if the the woman threw up. And so, um, yeah, nausea is like a common symptom of pregnancy or common side effect of pregnancy. Anyway, um, her nausea wasn't regular. It was like very severe. And her symptoms escalated quickly when she was at her parents' house over a weekend where she couldn't hold any food down. Um, she became dehydrated and she had to spend hours in the hospital with IV fluids to replenish her system. Um, and while I was reading this, I was thinking, isn't this pretty dangerous to the baby? Because um, whatever the mother eats, the baby eats as well. Yeah, no, I had that same thought because I was like, you know, it's a pretty susceptible time. You're carrying another human being inside you. You're, they always say you're eating for two, right? So if you're not eating for even one, then it's like, you know, how are you going to uh, be able to provide for this other organism that's growing and at a very susceptible time, um, you know, inside of you? So definitely interesting to see how she had to deal with this. And, um, you know, obviously medical intervention was needed where she was put on an IV drip for the nutrients uh, because otherwise there's no way that she could have 
continue to live. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure if it continued, her baby, her babies would have been hurt too. Um, so the symptoms continued and the doctors didn't prescribe any or didn't want to prescribe any medication. So at this point, Amy Fitzpatrick couldn't even hold down uh, cracker toast or anything bland, which is usually what pregnant people can hold down when they're feeling nauseous. Um, and even like the smell of the blandest foods, which I mean, I feel like blandest food, bland foods don't really have a smell, but even that would make her very nauseous and um she couldn't sit, she couldn't uh watch tv in bed or focus on a magazine she would throw up five to six times a week and she lost 12 pounds instead of gaining weight um which is pretty bad and she felt helpless basically so i mentioned how the bland foods were what was making her nauseous which was out of the uh, ordinary that's because usually things that have a strong smell or um, strong taste, the pregnant body sees these as toxins for the fetus and causes the mother to th- throw up because it doesn't want to harm the fetus. And so, yeah, um, although this throwing up and losing weight might seem disadvantageous, to the growing embryo because the embryo needs nutrition. It's actually protective, or it was protective evolutionarily because it was trying to protect the embryo from things that could cause harm to the baby. Um, And so it's usually natural foods uh, that don't have toxins or things that aren't very strong that are what the mother can tolerate. Right. So, I mean, that's a pretty solid explanation for why pregnant women or, you know, why we throw up sometimes when we, you know, have food poisoning or something that just doesn't agree with our stomach. So, you know, it's because our body thinks of it as a toxin and needs to expel it. But then the question comes, well, why do we throw up when we have motion sickness or why does motion sickness even exist as a thing? So, Essentially, Dr. Moalam goes through the research and comes to the conclusion that it might be because, you know, it's, it's always in the case where we're not in control of the motion, right? It's never as or it's less likely when you're the person driving the vehicle, right? It's always a passenger or it's when you're on a roller coaster and you can't control the stopping and the picking up and the directions, turns and all that. So it's always when you're not in control which Dr. Moalam thinks now, this isn't really a concrete theory, but it's kind of what they, the research points to at this point, is that the body tends to think of this motion as being akin to a sort of toxin, where it's not something we're used to, and therefore the body's like, no, I don't want this, um, and I'm going to try and throw it up because they think it's like a toxin that's entering our body, if that kind of makes sense. Um, I know that that's a little weird and abstract to think of, which is why I was like, is this what he's really trying to say? But it seems like that's the conclusion he reaches. And and that's summarized by the quote that says, so the nausea, the nausea and vomiting that comes with motion sickness may be a modern byproduct of our standard system for expelling poisons and nurturing avoidance of them. 
This theory is not nearly as well examined as the ex- explanation for pregnancy sickness, however, and we still don't have a convincing explanation of why anxiety or the sight of blood or a vomit itself should make people sick. So, you know, he's saying how this definitely isn't a very concrete theory, um, and obviously there's still a lot of mystery surrounding the idea of nausea when it comes to anxiety or a lot of times how people can't watch other people vomit because then they're going to start vomiting. Um, so basically they're saying it's kind of like a, something that we don't really know much about. And I mean, it reiterates the point that often comes up in our readings where it's just that we may feel like we know it all right now in science, but there's a lot unknown. So I think that's just a nice point to talk about right there. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that, um, motion sickness is even a thing, uh, and, you know, even with his explanation, I don't think I fully understand it. Uh, later in the thing, he, later in the book, he says, the inner ear components, enab- I'm going to read directly, the inner ear components that enable us to track our position in space um, has something to do with it. Basically, vigorous motion overstimulates the system, producing signals in the brain that trigger nausea and vomiting. Because something is unnatural in your ears like maybe they're noting like a different sort of air pressure um because of that and it's frequently changing and they can't really adjust that's probably why your body thinks of it as being some sort of toxin um, because it's just not natural and which is why it results to or resorts to vomiting and i think that makes sense because if it was any sort of vigorous motion overstimulation um, like it says in the book, um, and it actually questions in the book right after that, why activities like running, jumping, dancing never produce sickness. It's because those are things we did even before, like, you know, we've been, we've been doing that since we've been able to walk, but driving cars or going on planes, that's not really something that we did as uh, homo sapiens or, <laughs> or, you know, old cavemen, so... Maybe, yeah, like you said, it's because it's just so foreign that our body doesn't know how to react to it. And naturally, we just throw up whatever we have. You know, that was an interesting point he talked about, actually, how uh, it's because evolutionarily our bodies aren't accustomed to that sort of motion. So we don't have a way to respond. So, you know, cars and uh, well, I mean, if we even go back further, right, like the using the horse and buggy system of transportation or maybe there was something before that that I can't think of at the top of my head but like those had to be the first sorts of uh means of motion that wasn't just us walking so I wonder if that probably like produced some sort of motion sickness I mean yeah people get like uncomfortable when they ride horses and stuff right yeah so um then it's like that's just another perfect example of it and I wonder how or like if uh we're like yeah yeah actually yeah if like evolution is doing its thing where it's like the people who don't have bad motion sickness um I, I can say myself for example like I don't get motion sick unless it's like uh the one time I I was seasick on a cruise um but other than that like roller coasters I'm fine with car rides I'm fine with As a kid, I used to get sick if I was reading while on a car ride, but that was the most, like, the highest extent of my motion sickness. Um, But I wonder if, like, eventually society's gonna, like, I don't think so. Like, maybe, like, 
evolutionarily like weed out those who have motion sickness mm-hmm. as it is like a, a non-desirable trait but i don't i don't think it's not like survival or like a life or death matter like motion sickness so probably not but it's interesting to think that it's one of those like qualities yeah i as a kid i didn't even realize that not everybody got motion sickness because um growing up i would get sick every single car ride if it was longer than like 20 minutes and so uh everybody my friends my family extended family they'd all carry plastic bags for me to throw up in um even in india when i grew up there basically if i read in the car i get sick or if i look on the phone if i look down i get sick but if i'm just looking straight ahead and if i'm actively talking which i thought was pretty interesting i don't get car sick at all Hmm. oh that's interesting you think maybe it's like your body's like not paying attention to what's going on so you don't feel the effects as much maybe like i'm distracted um any card where it's like super quiet and i'm just actively not thinking about something either and i'm just watching the road i do get like a little nauseous um but i haven't thrown up in the car in a long time just because now that i know what to look for my doctor actually when i mentioned it to her in middle school she told me, um, don't look to the side, look forward. Because when you look forward, it doesn't seem like you're moving as much. When you look to the side, everything's passing by so quickly, you understand that you're moving more. And so that causes you to be more nauseous. Yeah, it must definitely be a combination of like your visual input, um, your, you know, whatever's happening in the ear, and just like a combination of like, uh, understanding what's going on and then also feeling it with your senses yeah so Fitzpatrick had lost about 12 pounds and her doctors were prescribing started prescribing her uh, drugs to control the nausea but they weren't really working she um she was trying different treatments that would uh that were supposed to help with the nausea but instead they were giving her uh different side effects like tremors, lockjaw, body rigidity, and difficulty breathing, all of which are probably intensely scary when you're pregnant, especially with twins, which is, I feel like, already a difficult pregnancy. Yeah, so these are dopamine-blocking receptors. Um, Today, however, they use, or at at the time that this book was written, they use serotonin receptor blockers, which are apparently a lot better for nausea and vomiting. Uh, she tried a lot of different treatments, one of which was C-bands, which is basically acupressure wristband. So they just apply pressure on the wrist and it's supposed to relieve you of nausea, but it didn't seem to work. So yeah, her uh, nausea continued. Uh, the doctors were getting frustrated because she was just like a case that they couldn't crack. Uh, nothing seemed to be helping her. A lot of them seemed like... Or, probably to her it seemed like they were like giving up on her just wanted to get rid of her because um she it writes in the book that or no dr gawande writes in the book that one doctor asked if she wanted to go back to new york um so it's like they were trying to get rid of her when she started throwing up cupfuls of blood that's where i feel like it got pretty serious it was serious to begin with um basically there was a tear in her esophagus and she was just because probably um, she was throwing up so much that it was causing irritation, and then now she's throwing up blood. It's kind of familiar to one time uh, I was on some medicine where 
I had to eat it with food or else I would throw up. And I guess there was this one time where I had it without food or maybe not enough food. And so I started feeling nauseous. And, you know, at that point, I was like, oh, maybe I should have, like, eaten more. So I vividly remember this. I'm trying to, like, stuff almonds. This might be a little graphic. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I'm trying to, like, uh, you know, eat almonds as I'm, like, walking up the stairs to get to the bathroom. And... Um, I remember putting the almond in my mouth, but my, my gag reflex was not having it. So I immediately like spit it back into my hand and exactly at the point I made it to the sink and I just, you know, <laughs> threw up. And, uh, I remember sitting there afterwards where I, I was like in pain, like my throat was, I didn't throw up blood or anything, but my throat felt like I had, or either my throat or my stomach, something felt like I had just stretched it. And so naturally i started googling oh my god am i all right <laughs> right and i was home alone i was young too so i just start kind of googling it and uh i was i literally sat there probably for the next at least hour maybe two where i was just like okay maybe if it'll go away and like it's like one of those things where you keep monitoring yourself expecting some change to happen within five minutes and if it doesn't you're still concerned which is why i sat there for that long but anyways um just kind of reminded me of the time where I thought, because like rem I remember what Google ended up telling me was that I might have torn my esophagus or something like that. So then I was like, oh my god, is that what happened? So it just kind of made me think of Amy over here. But obviously, I, I was not throwing up as much as she was, and definitely did not have any sort of bleeding going on. But that's really interesting. That's pretty scary too. And so basically, what Amy Fitzpatrick did is she just toughed it out. Instead of seeing her pregnancy as a struggle, she took it as something that she can get through and she just, you know, put her mind over the nausea, even though she was still experiencing the symptoms up till she gave birth, actually, um, by the 30th week. She gave birth to two kids um, and they're both in excellent health, actually. So they were healthy. And she says that after her delivery, she threw up once more, but that was the last time. And then after that, she was able, able to eat normally that night so that quickly it changed it was just the pregnancy that was causing her to throw up yeah so I guess I think the main idea of this story was just to talk about how weird of a concept nausea and vomiting really is and how we don't really know much about it even though it's such a common issue faced in like you know one example Dr. Gawande gives is that almost every side effect uh, or every medication has a side effect that is nausea um so despite how common it is it's still not that well known when you really think about it um and it might be because it's just like an evolution thing and obviously it's not a life or death thing in most cases because you know amy was pretty on the brink of like you know like without the iv trip she definitely wouldn't have been able to survive but I think it's interesting how she kind of like put mind over matter, just kept going, did it for her kids, and it was a happy ending. So that was nice. I feel like you hear mind over body a lot in uh, sports or different like ballerinas was they were mentioned earlier where um, they have a high pain tolerance. And it's because you're conditioned to put to push yourself past your point, like past the point where your brain tells you you're in pain or you can't go any further. So yeah, I, I bet that's what athletes and everybody put themselves through every day. And 
they probably have really high pain tolerance and I mean this is nausea but you know they probably have a high nausea tolerance too yeah I mean nausea definitely is like I think universally can be said that it's a pretty annoying feeling like no one likes the the feeling that they have that they're sick right like that they might throw up because it's a um hindrance to your everyday life like especially with Amy like she really couldn't get out of bed she had to put like pans all over her house in case she threw up walking upstairs or something right so I mean just I I couldn't imagine going through what she did just I hate the personally ever since I was a kid I hate the feeling of throwing up hate it when it happens definitely do feel better afterwards I guess which is the nice part about it I guess but it's also like no one ever wants to be in that position all right well that's all we have for today um we hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week bye Bye.